0: You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Knock, knock. Who's there? Oh, let's try it again. Knock, knock. Who's there? Oh, good. You know it. Good. So here it is. Knock, knock. Who's there? Cargo. No, a car goes beep-beep. Okay, that's a terrible joke, right? All right. If you know a good knock-knock joke, I'd love to hear it because I don't believe there are any good ones. But you know how this goes. The, the, the picture is the, somebody standing at the door knocking and you want to know who it is. So knock-knock, who's there is a the, is the thing. So today we're going we're gonna to incorporate that a little bit into what we're doing today. So everybody knows that at the very beginning, this question that you just asked, who's there is really the question. In fact, that question, who's there, is not just the question at the beginning, it's the question right now, today, and it's the question that will be at the very end. The question is, who's there? And so anytime today I say, who's there, I want you to say, God's there. So let's practice. Who's there? Let's try a little more feeling. Who's there? Good, very good, you've got it. If you have your Bibles, uh, and I know you do, the Chapel Bibles, page 785, I believe it is, Acts chapter 17, if you want to turn there, that would be super Acts chapter 17, and we're going to be in the last half of that chapter. I want to talk to you today about something that I believe is really important. I think God is up to something. I think God wants to use you, yes you, to start to bring about something that is revolutionary, transformative. I believe that God wants to use you to bring wholeness to things that are broken. I believe that God wants to use you, yes, you sitting here today, to bring transformation to this world. And I believe that God wants you to bring his kingdom. Amen? That's good. That's good news. That's good news. Our story starts in relationship. You know this, but just to make sure we're all on the same page. As we begin the story, it starts with God in creation. And he creates things to be in right relationship. There's a Hebrew word for that. It's shalom. Turn to your neighbor and say shalom. shalom. Try not to spit on your other neighbor, but say it to them as well. Shalom. Very good. It just, it just means we translate it sometimes in the word peace, but it's more than just not like nonviolence. It's this right relationship. Everything is in harmony. God with creation and all of creation, including humanity with God, this perfect picture. And the story starts in this kind of a relationship. And so it is relationship that it begins with. And one of the fundamental assumptions, one of the fundamental understandings of this relationship is that God, who creates all things, gives us what we need. This is really important. God gives us what we need. So this shalom relationship is actually this picture of us being in right relationship with a God who gives us what we need, and this is what he wants. It's kind of a beautiful picture. So it starts with God's call, God's love, God's care for us. We start with the question, who's there? Okay, you got to wake up a little. I know it's Monday. Who's there? Very good. God's there. Yeah, it starts with this question. And then our response to that reality that God's there is this response of trust and obedience and hope and peace and love. And so this is our story. But here's the thing that begins to happen is what what ultimately happens is God does give us what we need. But here's the thing. Stay with me on this because this is really important to this whole thing. We want more. And I want you to think about this for a minute. But I believe that one of the, really the fundamental problem, the issue for most of what we are, we are encountering in our world today isn't what God gives us. It's the reality that we want more. And so what happens is this. God gives us what we need, but for some reason, and when I say it like this, we think, oh, that's not, maybe that's not true, that's not me. But for some reason, we decide we know what's better. And we want more. We want more identity. We want more power. We want more knowledge. We want more, stay with me, type A people control. We want more popularity. We want more praise. We want more stuff. We want more money. We want more. And so this conversation happens ongoing in this midst of our story that God wants to give us this right relationship and what we need. The word is shalom. And we say, no, 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 what you give us isn't enough. We want more. You see how sort of silly this is at some point. But this is really our story. And so sin enters this picture. Sin is just this desire for us to choose our way over God's way. And so we know that as we begin to create things, as God creates things and we are made in his image, we are co-creators. As we create things, we create things, but we create them in this kind of broken way. Because what sin does is it, Distorts It disrupts. It disjoints. It disorders the shalom, the right relationship that God has. Again, you guys know this story. But God doesn't leave us alone in this. Amen. He sends his son, Jesus Christ. The word for this, a big theological word, you ready? Is incarnation. Turn to your neighbor and say incarnation. You can do it. Amen. Incarnation. That God doesn't leave us alone to this, but instead he sends his son, Jesus, to be with us. You are not alone. God wants relationship. we just saying it. God wants relationship so bad that he sent his son here. And even though his son physically isn't here, he's left his spirit here to constantly engage us, to pursue us, to be in this kind of relationship with him, that we can be in right relationship. We can be in this shalom kind of relationship where God is giving us what we need. But again, we ask this more, 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 more. But here's the reality. Who's there? God's there. Very good. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to read Acts 17, starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, I'm in the NIV, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they looked at him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus and they said to him, may may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and We would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. Maybe you can picture this. And said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I saw an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations of men, all nations, that they would inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands, he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered and others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers and believed among them. Dionysus, the, the member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. The word of the Lord. We pray with me, God. Thank you for this day. I pray that you would uh, speak through me today. I pray that you would soften our hearts, all of us here, that we might hear that you are present. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Starts in verse sixteen. If you have it really right there in front of you, just look. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, should be some questions right away. Why is Paul in Athens? Why is he waiting? Right? What's going on here? What, what, what does it mean to wait? So. Paul it tells us a little bit before this and earlier in chapter 17 that Paul and his two buddies Timothy and Silas were in Berea and they were sharing with people about Jesus and people were responding and it was good. And then some other people who had heard about Paul before and didn't like him came to Berea. They started causing all these problems. It got so bad that it seemed like Paul would probably be arrested or maybe beaten up or maybe even worse. So some people took him down to Athens and he let Timothy and Silas kind of stay there and And finish up work. So he's waiting. What happens when things don't go your way? What do you do when things don't go your way? If you're like me, you have a plan for things, right? And I I guarantee Paul's plan when he went to Berea wasn't that he would be interrupted halfway through. Threatened with his life and have to leave. But that's what happened to Paul. What happens to you when things don't go your way? Maybe right now you're in the midst of a class where things aren't going your way. Or maybe right now you're in the middle of another kind of situation where things aren't going the way that you thought they would. What happens? What do you do when things don't go your way? I don't know like, if you're like me at all. Oftentimes what I do is I do this very theological thing which is called whining, right? <laughs> and we complain about things and we talk about, we get so focused on the things that aren't even near us, the that, that, that things that are out of our control, but we get so focused because things didn't go the way we wanted that we lose sight of Maybe something really significant that's happening in our very midst. Scripture tells us of a really interesting story of, of this. So right after Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried... These two guys are walking down the road and they're so upset about everything that happened because Jesus wasn't who they thought he was. He wasn't the king who would come in and destroy the Roman Empire and take over and show everyone that they were right. He wasn't that king at all and they were so distressed and so disturbed and they're walking down the road just talking about this and they don't even realize that the other person walking with them is actually Jesus. (laughs) Can I say to you today that many of us are walking down roads, complaining about the things that didn't go the way we want, but Jesus is actually right there with us. Yeah. And then it says that Paul is waiting. How do you do at waiting? We've been taught in our culture that waiting is bad, right? We don't like to wait. We don't like to wait for what's? Next, my point exactly. <laughs> right, we've been taught that waiting is something so terrible, but here we find Paul doing this very thing that we've been taught is awful, and he's waiting in the midst of what God might do. Instead of complaining about things, he instead of thinking that he knows better, he waits because he knows who's there. <laughs> Try it again. Who's there? Come on. God's there. Yeah, that's right. God's there. So verse 16 continues and it says that Paul is very distressed. I want you to catch this. This It's a really important part of the story that Paul is very distressed. That means something. That means that Paul cares. What's Paul been up to while he's waiting? Instead of complaining about things, instead of worrying about things, what's he doing? He's going around and he's learning this new place where he is. He's engaging some people in conversations. He's looking for places where perhaps God might be at work. And so he's learning and he's caring. I want you to see in this phrase, very distressed means that Paul actually cared. And so he's distressed. He's bothered by the reality that so many of these people are worshiping other gods. They're worshiping these objects they've made of their own hand. I'm just gonna ask you a question really quickly, and I just want you to wrestle with this for a little while. Are you actually distressed at all by the world that we live in? By by the many idols, the many gods that people worship? Are you distressed by that? Just asking. But I think there's something in this that's so important and key to God's heart because I believe that breaks God's heart because the shalom, that perfect relationship is broken when we begin to worship these other things, these things made by our own hands. So I want you to think about objects for a second. The very things that we often worship are the things that we make objects. Whether we make them by our own hand, in this case they made these idols and these altars and these temples and these shrines, to these gods that they came up with in their own mind. These man-made things somehow never satisfy us. But you think about how silly it is that we might create something that we would then worship and then somehow assume that something I created would somehow give me purpose and life and peace and hope and meaning. But yet we do it ourselves all the time, don't we? We create these objects that we worship, whether it's technology, things that are man made, whether it's money. Some of us are pursuing money with everything we have. Some of us are pursuing things like stuff and more and more and more stuff. And it's almost Christmas time and we're going to get more and more stuff. And our country will spend billions of dollars on more stuff so we can be happy. Obviously, everyone right after Christmas is always super happy, right? And it's just this ridiculous brokenness that we begin to fall into this cycle where we create these objects that we worship and they never lead to true peace, to true purpose, to true happiness. And so then we also take things that were created for other things that God creates and we try to make them into objects as well. Things like identity, things like sexuality, things like other people's physical appearance. We make them into objects, objects that are not subjects, objects that we can hold at a distance and we can look at and we can critique and we can try to make and manipulate to be what we want for our purpose and our pleasure. And guess what? That never leads to peace. It never leads to wholeness. It never leads to what we want. It never leads to that kind of true love that we're after because there's no relationship. It's object. And so we find Paul very distressed by these objects, this disorder to the shalom. So what does Paul start doing? He's distressed, so what does he start doing? He starts telling them who's there. God's there. He's pointing out to them all the places. In the, if you read the text there, it's in front of you, the synagogue, and he goes to the marketplace, and then he gets some attention, and he goes to the Areopagus, and he starts telling them who's there. They even ask him, who's there? And he's like, well, thank you. I'm so glad you asked. Let's talk about this, right? And this is really what he begins to do. And I want you to catch this, and this is really important. When we love people, when we know that God loves people, we want to tell them the good news about Jesus. We want to tell them who Jesus is. We want to tell them about this kind of relationship, and this is really important, in ways that they can understand. We want them to hear it and see it and experience it in ways that they can receive it. But most of the time we do something different. We want them to conform to us. We want them to become like us. So there are two big options when we begin to engage people who see the world differently than we do. One of them is we can run away from it, sort of like Jonah. And how does that work out? Not very great. The other thing we can do is what I like to call snow globe it, you know? You know what a snow globe is? It's like this little ball, right? And inside you like a house or a snowman or something, and you shake it up and the snow kind of falls and it's this like perfect idyllic scene of whatever you think Christmas is supposed to be or whatever. And and here's the thing, the things outside the outside of the globe can never get in. And the things inside are nice and protected and perfect and Wonderful. And so we what we do in our man made minds sometimes is we start to think that perhaps in the church, perhaps in the Asbury snow globe, if I can use that phrase, we think that things are good here, but out there, whoo, watch out. We treat that world out there like a trip to the public bathroom. I have four kids, two daughters. And when they were young, there's a place when they have to go. They're too big to go with dad into the, and when you're out in public to the bathroom. So they got to go into the girls' bathroom by themselves. And so I had a little saying that I would, I would give them every time. I'd say, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go in. You're going to take care of your business as fast as possible. Touch as little as you can. Wash your hands and get out. Okay? That's your job, right? And, and we do this all the time, and I think maybe unintentionally, but we do this, we talk about the church as if somehow it is without sin and it's sacred, we use this language sacred and secular that we made up, and we pretend the church has got it perfect and together and if we just stayed here, everything would be okay, but the reality is, and then we talk about the world as if somehow it's broken and dirty and if we can touch as little of it as possible, maybe we won't get any on us. But the reality, and if you read the Gospels really clearly, Jesus is really clear about this. The sacred and the secular, our terms, are actually intermingled together. The weeds and the crops are together that somehow God begins to understand that what's, the reality of it is it's not separated like we like to think. There's not this side and that side. Because it's got a Christian label on it, then it's Christian. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. If it's a Christian movie, it's Christian. If it do, it doesn't. God doesn't divide things like that. In fact, what he wants for us is to begin to engage. Scripture models this for us over and over again. And here's just one more example. Paul, instead of saying, holding up a sign and saying, you're stupid for following these gods, I'm going to pick at this and put it on social media, right? What does he do? He engages them in a language and a way that they can understand. By the way, just as an aside, Scripture is pretty clear that the most mature among us should be the ones who bend the most. Read 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Paul's really clear, like, what God wants for those of us who are mature is not that everyone else become like us, that not that everyone learns our language and learns our hymns and learns our stuff, but what it actually says is those who are most mature should bend the most in order to engage the world that we live in. And so this is exactly what Paul does. So if you take a look at the text again in verse 23, Paul starts to use their symbols to an unknown God. He starts to use their poets If you check this out in verse 28, basically every part of verse 28, he's just quoting their poets. It'd be like quoting, say, Beyonce (laughs) or Kendrick Lamar saying it's going to be all right. It's like he's saying, he's not saying these poets are Christian because they certainly weren't. He's not saying these poets will point us to God because those poets he's quoting certainly had no agenda to point them to to the, the true God. But what Paul's saying is, you understand this, so let me start where you start. Let me start in the culture that you start with. And not that I'm baptizing it, not that I'm saying that you should just learn everything just for fun, but rather he learns those things, he knows those things. Why? So he can point people to the good news of Jesus Christ. That there's a relationship here with God that is different than anything else we worship. And so he uses these things that they would know really well. And he begins to incorporate them into things. So he knows the truth. He looks for the truth. Because, stay with me right here, because he knows who's there. there. Who's always there. God's always there. He understands that God's at work even before you show up. And this is good news, because you don't have to be the Savior, because you're not the Savior. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're not the Savior. (laughs) Turn to your other neighbor and say, and you're not either. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. God's already at work, and what he wants to do, and this is, stay with me here, Asbury, because this is where I want to spend our last few minutes together. I want you to understand he wants to use you to make a difference in people's lives. So Paul begins to engage them, and he starts talking about God, the God he knows versus their gods. And so he just simply starts talking about things like this. Hey, the God that you don't know, he doesn't live in temples made by human hands. Your gods? And if you can imagine the irony of this, where they were standing, they could probably see dozens, probably hundreds of idols and shrines and altars and temples to all these other gods that were made by human hands. Our God doesn't need that. In fact, our God doesn't need to be served. If you're reading along in the text, our God doesn't need to be served. He doesn't need anything. Your God's constantly need to be served and to be sacrificed to. Our God, he created everything. He gives everything life and breath for free because he loves you. He gives and wants this relationship because he cares about you. Your God's, oh, they might help you, but you've got to sacrifice more and more and more and more, and it's never enough. And some of us, if we're living in here and we're pursuing these other things, you know the reality when I'm pursuing identity and relationships, when I'm pursuing trying to get more stuff, then that's an empty road. And even though I keep giving it more and more and more of myself, I'm just more and more tired, more and more filled with anxiety, more and more broken. What God says is, no, no, no. Paul's saying, God, this God we serve, he loves you, period. Right here, right now. And then he says that God, this God created everyone. And he created them for relationship. That they might seek him out and find him. What he's desiring is relationship. With these other gods, you've got to go to them. And you've got to give more to them. With our God, he comes to us. All we have to do is say yes. Yes. And this is what the picture of God begins to create. That Paul is trying to show us that this God of the universe loves us and wants right relationship with us. So even though we're in the midst of this process of seeking our own way, God still loves us and is pursuing us and wants this right relationship. So Asbury, I want to say to you, you can do this because who's there? God's there. I want you to think about a situation perhaps a friend you know, maybe, maybe it's family members, people who are unchurched in some capacity, people you know who don't know Jesus at all. And again, I want you to just, I want to remind you of this. Who's there in the midst of that? God's there, God's there. So five takeaways, okay? I'm gonna be kind of quick on these. Five takeaways. Number one, number one, engage ideas, even if they're what you think when they start, you won't agree with. So be willing to engage new thoughts. You never know where God might be at work in some of those things. Now, if any of you are perfect, if you'd raise your hand, we'd all like to know who you are, okay? I don't think any of us are perfect. I don't think any of us today, if we're in Christ, are where we were maybe five years ago when we started maybe in Christ. I'm certainly not where I was a long time ago. Praise the Lord. I'm glad that God continues to move and show me things. And if I'm unwilling to engage new ideas, then I can't allow God to begin to speak to me. Now, just because it's new doesn't mean that God's in it. Maybe some of that stuff we need to filter out and say, you know what? No, that's not good but we can't really know it if we won't even engage it. So we need to engage new ideas, new peoples, new places, engage those things. And then number two, hold up, number two, look for truth. Look for truth. Look for truth and name it. There are three kinds of truth, I think. There are things that are absolutely true all the time. I don't think there's a whole bunch of these, but there's some of them. Things like Jesus is Christ and Jesus is King. Amen. That's true all the time. Amen? Amen. 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 But there are lots of other things that are redeemable truths. Things like like that we see in movies or in music or in art or maybe just everyday conversations. Like when maybe you have a friend who doesn't claim Jesus at all, but maybe they actually are really good at caring for you. That's, That's a truth that's redeemable. We can point to that thing and say, you know what? That's like Jesus. That's true and good. And then there are things that I think just aren't true at all have no truth or goodness or beauty in them. Things like pornography, right? They're just broken. So engage, look for truth and name it. Part of our job is to be, I love this phrase from an author, that we're to be like the detectives looking for the fingerprints of God everywhere we go. And that's part of our job is to point out in the people around us where we see God at work. So let me use a real practical example. Most of you in here, I'm guessing, have seen the movie Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes? Some of you have seen that movie? Okay? Yes? Okay? So that movie is really simple. What is that movie ultimately about? If you just pay attention to the big story, what's it about? It's really about everyone's desire to have a place and to fit in. That's what the whole whole movie is about, that. Can I have a place? Can I have a people? Can I fit in? Does Scripture talk about People desiring a place, desiring to fit in, and a place where they can be found in community that is good and whole and perfect. Yes, it's called shalom. It's called the whole story, right? And so it's there in front of us if we're willing to look for it. The third thing is to address culture. Address culture in the language that they understand. I used to serve in a church and we had a worship pastor. He was a great worship pastor, but he would say this phrase sometimes, He would say, let's worship together in the beauty of God's holiness. And that's a great phrase, but people who were visiting had no idea what he was talking about. (laughs) And so we started having some conversations, and he kept saying it even though he heard us. But finally, he had a friend who started coming. This friend was struggling with alcoholism, didn't grow up in the church at all. And when he finally heard his phrase, let's worship God in the beauty of his holiness— through the eyes of his friend who had been an alcoholic, he was like, he has no idea what in the heck I'm talking about. <laughs> so we've got to learn to begin to put things in phrases and words that people understand. And then number four, and this is important to number three, no Scripture. So say to your neighbor, "No Scripture. This is, if I can be really frank with you, Asbury, if I can give you a little kidney punch maybe today, this is one of the areas I think we struggle with the most. We know where Scripture is. We've got it on our phone. We've got it in the little Bible in front of us. But the reality is, yeah, Scripture's around, but how do you know where to go if you don't even know what's in there? So I want to challenge you today to spend some time knowing Scripture because Scripture helps us engage the world around us. Scripture helps us see God. Scripture helps us discern what's right and wrong. And then number five, we need to do this together. If you look in Scripture carefully, almost every time God sends people out, whether it's Jesus sending out his disciples or the Holy Spirit sending out his church or even back in the Old Testament when God begins to move in people's lives and they begin to, they're blessed to be a blessing when they begin to share that story. God sends them out together and that's on purpose. We need to learn to engage this world together. So I want to challenge you to do this together. Now, why can we do this? Because who's there? Let's try it again with some feeling. Who's there? there. Will you pray with me? God, we love you. We know that you are present. God, I know that some people in this room today are struggling because they're in the midst of a great battle. I believe there's some people in here that maybe are battling some health issues and things aren't going as they planned because of those health issues. God, I pray that you'd remind them today that you are there. God, I think there's some people who have some family members they're going to see in a week And it's gonna be a lot of tension and a lot of stress and some of them don't know Jesus and some of them don't know why we're here at Asbury and why we're following Jesus. And I believe that for some of them, there's this question, who's there? God, are you really in the midst of that relationship? And I pray you'd remind them today that you're there. God, I pray that you would also give us hearts that break for people who don't know you, that don't know this great relationship in you. God, I pray that you would... Give us eyes to see them. God, when we put us in situations, when we wind up in places where things aren't going like we want, I pray that you would, instead of us complaining, that you would remind us that you're there and that you're inviting us into something right where we are right now. And God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, that we might be able to share the good news of Jesus with people in ways that they would understand, that they could hear, that they could experience you. Forgive us of the places where we bring our agenda and give us hearts that are breaking for the world around us. God, there's men and women in this room I know that you're calling right now to serve you in some ways that they're nervous about. Maybe to have some conversations with some people that they're not sure how they're gonna be handled and God, I pray you give them wisdom, give them words, give them your love that would go before and around that would be a part of those relationships so that they would be heard with the good news that your son Jesus loves us and invites us into this relationship with God that is better than anything we could ever do on our own, anything we could create with our own hands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Will you stand with us as we worship?